Hi, I'm Richard Carrier, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Coming at you with another set of gags, this is Left of Ellie. My name is Kevin, and my friends told me to stop acting like a flamingo, so I had to put my foot down. <laughs> you know, joining me as usual is a team, but today it's just Scott and I. So, I guess you're the guy who uh, bought me an elephant for my room. I said thanks, but you said don't mention it. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? I'm alright. I'm sore all over. Oh, for the elephant, right? It's heavy. It was hard to carry. <laughs> and fitting it through the doors was just... Oh, well, our other friends are not here with us today, so it's just you and me holding up the fort, buddy. Nancy's down visiting some friends, and uh, Christina has uh, had a bit of a little car accident. So uh, hope We she's, hope she's okay. Yeah, she's okay. She's just sore, so she excuses herself for not being here. So we're going to have a bit of a solo show just you and I today and we're going to be uh, playing the interview we did early on this week with Dr. Richard Carrier. Oh, that was awesome. Yes, that was a, a bit of a little lesson in history and I'm sure our, our uh, listeners will benefit greatly. But before that, let's do a bit of chit chat. I'm game. So uh, we have a new uh, Governor General. Yes, we do. What was the controversy uh, surrounding this Governor General? I didn't even hear of a controversy. Wasn't there you a controversy around that? Julie Payette. She used to be an astronaut, and she speaks six languages. Yes. So I guess she's a pretty cool representative. I think so. Not the I average guess. Canadian. I don't no, think the no, average she, Canadian speaks six languages. She's far from average. Yeah, exactly. Here locally, of course, we also have a new government, a new premier, John Horgan. That's going to be interesting I'm, to keep I'm, an eye on that. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how they perform. Yeah, you know, we should invite the guys from Politicos to come and discuss this. Not sure if our audience would be interested in that, but, you know, local politics is always interesting. Uh, a little while back, we talked about Miriam Mirzanki... Oh, I'm going to massacre this again. Try I'm that so again. Sorry. Mirzan, uh, Mirzak Honey. She was the first woman to win the, uh, win the field medal in uh, mathematics. Wow. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately she just died. She was very young. She, she was not? forty. Yeah, yeah. She died of breast cancer and it spread to the uh, to, oh, to the, her no. bones. That's horrible. She won the prize in twenty fourteen. That's you know breaking the glass ceiling, I guess, for her uh, in in that sense. You know, we know the, the the that medal in mathematics is no small feat. No, that is that is serious. That's some serious, serious brain power. Brain there. power. And going it's kind on, of a shame yeah. to see her gone already. Gone. That's a shame. How far she could have gone. Um, here's an interesting story. Uh, 15 years ago, there was a wreck that was discovered uh, in near Bofall in uh, North Carolina on a sandbar. It turns out that wreck is the Queen Anne's Revenge, the actual ship of Blackbeard. Go on. Oh, yeah, I'm telling you. Go on, Apparently, no way. The, the pirate, the notorious pirate, although he was only super notorious for like a couple of years, he was killed in battle with a British ship uh, in the Pamilco Sound in 1718. Uh, there, was, there was speculation that Blackbeard ran the ship aground so he could keep the mo- uh, most of the uh, plunder that he had. 
That so, makes sense. So now they've they've done enough research in these fifteen years to realize yes, this is the official Queen Anne's Revenge. Wow. So that's pretty cool. A touch of history there. Wishy Nancy was here to Blackbeard. That's right. Well she was probably there when they crashed. <laughs> she was probably on the ship, right? <laughs> we get this she was gag. watching from the shore. <laughs> we get this running gag with Nancy that she was she's been everywhere throughout history. Um, what do you think of uh, the juice? O.G. Simpson granted parole. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, there's a lot of people who wish he'd rot in jail. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, he did serve his time, and, and of course, I guess he's been a model prisoner while he's been in there. So, so he has. Now, now people don't realize that this is not. He hasn't been sent to prison on the original case, the one that made him famous about the killing of Nicole Brown. His wife and uh, what was the guy Ron no, Goldman? This was for the this was for the paraphernalia. His yeah, he, that's he right. He was going to retrieve his stuff and he tried to rob it. He claimed some of the stuff was stolen, and then he showed up with a couple of guys in the room. So it's like a breaking and entering and all that. And one of the guys was armed, so he was sentenced to thirty three years in jail, which I thought was really that's, tough. That's kind of extreme. Yeah, but of course now he spent I don't know how many years nine, he spent. I nine, thought it was nine years. Nine years, and now which is close to a third, I guess. Yeah. And now he's being released on parole. But, I mean, the guy is 70 years old. I mean, he, he's going to be a pariah for the rest of his life. People are not going to call him in a, well, I don't know, maybe well, some idiot's going to call he's him. He's got a hell of a good pension, him. though. I guess the NFL pension he had was twenty five grand a month. Yeah, but, you know, even if you he's, do, if you get no friends whatsoever. He could buy his own island and <laughs> disappear. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to miss gonna him. Buy, you're mean, not going to buy an island at 25. Grand a month? 25 grand a month, oh. That's what he gets. <laughs> oh, okay, maybe. <laughs> that was what I heard. That was back when his trial was on, when they when they took all of his money away from him in the civil trial. Mm -hmm. They said, but that leaves him with his 25000 a month NFL pension, which they're not allowed to touch. Well, I don't feel so bad it's now. a pension. Yeah. Yeah, I think you'll be fine. So he's he's not hurting at all. No. Money, money-wise. No. Uh, did you hear that the uh, there's a Berkeley radio station, uh, KPFA, they had an event uh, where Richard Dawkins was supposed to give an interview about his latest book. Okay. And they decide to cancel the event. Why? Because his tweets, quote, offended and hurt people of Islamic faith. I renew my objection to this pointless endeavor. Informally now and by affidavit later. Time permitting. Well, well indeed. Uh, I don't know about you, but it seems to me with all the talks we've been having, and I don't want to be one to talk about conspiracy theory and shit like that, but it seems to me there's like a concerted effort to really push Islam in a, in a light. There has been. Yeah. yeah and I'm, been I'm really concerned about that. We have uh, the federal initiative to stop Islamophobia in the uh, parliament. That was yeah, that bill. M103. M103. Sorry, yeah. it was a member's, uh, member's Yeah, it's a motion. motion. It's not a bill. Um, it's going to make recommendations for me. Right. right. But, but you see the direction that's going. Exactly. In, right? exactly. It's, it's singling out Islam as the... Faith of choice. Like somehow yeah. Islam is a victim of. Yeah. Of, it's like yeah. everybody else off. can go to hell. Yeah. Just Islam gets their. Uh... Yeah, the religion of peace, my ass. Yeah. <laughs> and here's a nice little uh, story. Um, Ken Ham. Oh. Our, our favorite Australian. Uh, how's he doing? <laughs> well, you know the Ark Encounter? Yeah. You know how we said it was going bankrupt? Yeah. Well. He decided to, um, this is in Williamstown, Kentucky, right? Williamstown decided to um, put a tax, they call a safety fee, uh, to put that on ticketed attractions, right? They were supposed to be 50 cents per ticket. 
Uh, so, you know, to help fund police, well, that'll, fire departments. That'll break the bank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Ken Ham replied to that by selling the Ark Encounter to himself for 10 bucks. Well done. <laughs> and he thought he was going to get away with this? Well, this, 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 this is where you see that in reality, Christians only worship one thing, and it's money, right? Uh, of course, the Ark Encounter, as uh, Cam replied that, you know, you can't tax nonprofits. But the thing is, is the Ark Encounter was a for-profit venture. Right. And the reason it was a for-profit venture is because it got him some uh, tax incentives, right? To the tune of $18 million, I believe. From, about, uh, about that, right? From so the he, state, so yeah. you could receive some tax incentive. But now that they're about to put a little tax on it, and of course, uh, Williamstown, Kentucky is realizing that it's nowhere near the manna from heaven they were hoping the Ark Encounter would be. <laughs> then he decides to turn around and he sells it to Crosswater Canyon, which is a non-profit, which is, of course, part of his branch and all that. And the property is said to be worth $48 million. Oh, wait a minute. But but that would mean that he's not in compliance with the the initial grant of $18 million in tax incentives from the government. That's so too that, late. He's got that now, right? Oh, but he's going to have to pay it back. I'm going well, it's I'm gonna, willing to bet. It's going to go to court, obviously. I think they'll start dismantling the Ark. <laughs> if this wood's worth this much money, we can take this. Yeah, so oh, the saga of Ken Ham and his Ark continues. I wonder well, if... You, sh- you should give him a call so you can get him on the show. Oh, God, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not giving that buffoon any airtime, even if it is on a small show. I'm not doing that script. Oh, that would be fun. Come no, on. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We could laugh at him. <laughs> Yeah, we would laugh at him a lot. <laughs> but anyway, fair enough. So Nancy's not with us, but we're going to play a pre-recorded version of This Day in History, and we'll be right back after this. All righty, let's do This Day in History, which, as we know, is a roundup of those events and people that altered and illuminated the days between July 17th and July 23rd. So July 19th, starting out with a goodie, is National Ice Cream Day. Ooh. Oh, yeah. What's your favorite? Uh, cookies and cream. Cookies and cream. How about you, Scott? No comment. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's flavor. secret. I, no. I, I, I'm a diabetic. I'm not allowed to comment. Oh, that's oh, right. But they've got sugar-free. So, yeah, you sorbet, know, man. Absolutely. Sorbet, man. Okay. July 20th is a little-known um, holiday called Wilgefortis Day, and Wilgefortis was a female saint of popular religious uh, um, um, imagination whose legend arose in the 14th century and whose distinguishing feature was a large beard. And you can actually she's a female with a large beard. A large beard, and, and you she's can a actually saint. and she's a saint, and you can actually find portraits of her online. So really? happy Wilgefortis Day. And 1712, the Riot Act t- uh, took effect in Great Britain. And there actually was a Riot Act, and it used to be read in public, which I thought I thought reading the Riot Act was just something that was made up. I believe it's still the law, even in it, Canada. It is. Well, it, in English law, the control of unruly citizens had been the responsibility of local magistrates. And, and, and any group of 12 or more that the authorities didn't like the look of could be deemed a riotous um, and tumultuous assembly. And they were arrested if they didn't disperse within an hour of the Riot Act being read to them by a magistrate. So the Riot Act was passed by the British Parliament in 1714 
and came into, a for, uh, into force 1715. And here's the warning of the uh, riot act. Our sovereign lord, the king, chargeth and commandeth the, commanded death all persons being assembled immediately to disperse themselves and peaceably to depart to their habitations or to their lawful business upon pains contained in the act made the first year of King George, preventing tumults and riotous assembles. God save the king. Mm-hmm. Now, don't you think the police should stand up they and do totally that not. and be more civil rather than rubber bullets? Don't you think that makes more sense? I think they say that before firing the rubber bullets. <laughs> but, but today, of course, it's God save the queen. Right? Yeah, I think we ought to bring that But back. rubber bullets are so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Until they hit you. And yeah, exactly. No, no, when you're the one shooting them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Um, July 20th in 1811, legend has it that the cheese ball came about. And actually it came about in 1801, and a 12,035-pound ball of cheese was pressed at the farm of Elijah Brown Jr. and presented to President Thomas Jefferson at the White House as a token of gratitude. That incident supposedly gave rise to the term, here it comes, the big cheese to promote a person of importance. I didn't. I that didn't that know the origin. Now that very you cool. know, I read that, but so that Thomas doesn't Jefferson mean, was the original like big cheese. The, Thomas Jefferson was the original big cool. cheese. Uh, 1871, BC joined the Canadian Confederation, which was important. Um, moving on to July 22nd, it was Hammock Day in the U.S. A nice summer day. Oh, my um, favorite day. Yeah. Now it. Um, on July 22nd is the day when three solo around the world's records were established. 1933, Wiley Post uh, took seven days to go around the world. In 1983, Dick Smith, the first helicopter, um, and in 1989, that took 11 months because you can only go so far. Can you imagine going around the world in a helicopter? And I don't know how he how he made across the ocean. I should have looked uh, that up. That's kind of scary. Across the narrow a, part of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether he was ferried. You know, I'll have to look that up. Flies with a boat. Uh, with a boat. <laughs> he lands on the boat. <laughs> yeah, and uh, a young lad named Tony Allen. Alienenga, I'll never, I'm not going to, I'm going to butcher it. The further I go, the worse it's going to get. Anyway, he was the youngest pilot at age nine, but then at 11, it took him 11 weeks, um, and he was the youngest pilot to uh, to make the, the flight around the world. And it actually started out as Friendship Flight 89, which was a round-the-world journey arranged with the hopes to improve Soviet-American Relations. So he actually went um, to uh, to um, the Soviet Union, um, and he had a pen pal there. He took off from John Wayne um, Airport in Orange County, and he clocked twenty one thousand fifteen hundred and sixty seven miles afterward. Um, the reason you don't hear about him, you hear about other young pilots who um, displaced him, and the reason was. Tony's dad sat with him in the Cessna uh, going back and forth. So he really wasn't given the credit, you know, in terms of being the youngest. He was supervised. He was, well, he was supervised, but his dad claims he flew the whole way. They went to Alaska and had a, a, a short break for a fishing trip. 
and um, the dad was going to take sort of like the first leg from where the fishing trip was to where they were going to take off and crashed the plane and poor Tony was just heartbroken because that was the last leg so they immediately found another Cessna and he fought he finished the finished the trip what's amazing about that story is there's a John Wayne airport there yes there is a John Wayne airport in Orange County California all the things yeah it's been there for been there for for quite a while yeah well he was I don't think he was a native of Orange County but he was a big he was a big cheese there so (laughs) so so they basically tell you line uh, lane three is clear for you to land there pilgrim yeah. <laughs> As a matter of cool. fact, I think some of the some of the stewardesses do that <laughs> when they when they fly in. And that dear listeners brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre, but as many bizarre as I can find, events and people that make up this day in history. Thank you very much, Nancy. As usual. <laughs> very well done. And that was the this day in history. Well done. So even when she's not with us, she is with us. You just cannot run away. <laughs> she's standing somewhere watching. I, I know it. <laughs> no, she's down there with family, so I hope she's having a lot of fun. Yeah. So in the meantime, before we go to commercial and we go to uh, our interview with Richard Kerr, let's do our segment that we like called Another Brilliant Moment. Another Brilliant Moment brought to you by religion. You watch UFC by any chance? No, I don't. No. Well, <laughs> My you brother know, does. There, there's a fighter who said he'd win a fight because God surrounds him. He's a warrior of Christ, a soldier of God. And you know what happened? He lost. Of course. <laughs> Joel Romero, a.k.a. the soldier of God, was hoping to claim the USC interim middleweight title. And before his fight against Robert Whitaker, he was fully confident he'd make the match because God had his back. Ow. Jesus! Romero yelled, pounding his chest before working up a sweat at the Park Theater in a Monte Carlo Resort and Casino. And why will he come out ahead against his younger upstart who's already knocked off one of the contenders to be? Because God is on my left and God is on my right, Romero said. Wow. I guess Whitaker didn't get the memo because he later, later defeated Romero in a unanimous decision. <laughs> that is so sad. Well, you know... Why, why do people believe, like, honestly? God can do anything except beat a chariot of iron. Don't you know that? It's in the Bible somewhere. It's in the Bible somewhere. So the guy must have been riding an iron chariot to the ring or something. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> literally. Here's another interesting story. You know, there's been a lot of weird things happening in South Africa when it comes to Christianity. Over the last year or so, South Africans have to find out the hard way that there are some dangerous, odd pastors roaming the country. Some of them are spraying congregants with doom to mixing or text with holy water. The latest crazy pastor is doing something thankfully less dangerous, but still just as insane. Uh, pastor Pasike um, wow, Motsunig, better known as the controversial Pastor Mboro. You keep getting these names. Oh boy, I know. <laughs> South Africa, right? He posted on Facebook where he explained that he went to hell to kill the devil. And more than that, he apparently succeeded too, according to himself. (laughs) Here's the quote. When I got to hell, there was a queue of millions of people waiting to be (laughs) praised by Satan. I even saw some prominent South African politicians, he said. I was so shocked because they lived like angels here on earth. 
I thought they went to heaven. When Satan saw me, bum, 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 he panicked <laughs> and directed his army to kill me. Like Samson in the Bible, I defeated them. Satan was my last victim. <laughs> what is this guy taking? I want some. Oh, whatever it is, it's good shit for sure. Unsurprisingly, though, uh, M. Boro has a bit of a history with claims like this. Last Easter, he claimed that he was overcome by a spirit and went to heaven and took pictures with his cell phone. Remember that story? No, I never heard oh, that one. Yeah. That's all. And wow. Then he, <laughs> and then he kind of lost his cell phone miraculously. <laughs> and of course, what did he do with the pictures? He sold them, of course. Oh, right, yeah. So sticking with the, this topic of money, because he likes to make money, M. Boro told his congregant that he could get him into heaven Guaranteed way to get into heaven, but this cost is 10,000 rand, which is how about much? 700 US. So, for the low, low price of 700 US, you can uh, a guaranteed I'm, I'm access. Betting, I'm betting for people living there, that's a pretty penny. I'm sure it is. Yeah. I'm sure it is. So, this pastor said he's so blessed that God once sent him a BMW i8 really? with the value of 2 million rand because Amboro helps the church and helps the poor with his deeds. <laughs> Hey! Wow! This guy is like, you know, can't you have the Street Fighter style fight between the pastor and Satan? I can just see it in the movie. We're gonna make it. This that'd be the movie of the week, September. You know, that, first week of September, movie of the week. The pastor defeats Satan in a one-on-one fight. Well, speaking of idiots, uh, did you <laughs> Doug Dynasty? The star Cy Robertson. You remember this guy? I I like that. You like Doug Dynasty? I like. What's Duck wrong Dynasty. with you? <laughs> Well, it was stupid. Well, he claims there's no such thing as an atheist because our calendars are based on Jesus Christ. There we go. What? Our calendars are based on Jesus Christ. So there's no such thing as left of the valley or atheist or anything like that. Might as well close the show. All right. All right. We're done. <laughs> That's it. I'm sorry. Our audience, we the, don't exist. No, we don't exist anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, we can't do anything about it. All right. Well, that and was that's great. all because of the calendar? Yeah, all because of the calendar. Yeah. How does he figure that? What's the logic behind that? Because the calendar's... It doesn't matter. Say that again. Just say it again. Cy Robertson said, no, that there's no such thing as atheists, as an atheist, because our calendars are based on Jesus Christ. So, for the past couple of years, we've been doing the show in our mind, I guess. Just not having a reality. We've been following the calendar. Maybe you're just a figment of my imagination, Scott. Is that possible? Could be. Oh, jeez. That's it. Well... I know know that everything's been in my dreams, so... Bad dreams. I'd like to thank our audience for being with us virtually for nothing for the past couple of years. No, just kidding. That is sad. <laughs> they just when you think they've they've crossed the hurdle and and can't get any stupider, <laughs> they jump a higher hurdle and get stupider. Yes. While promoting his new film, A Faith of Our Fathers, Robertson, known as by Duck Dynasty's fan as Uncle Sai made some absurd claims concerning the existence of atheists while speaking of the Christian post. Quote, I don't believe there's such thing as an atheist because there's too much documentation. Our calendars are based on Jesus Christ. Whether you believe in him or not, every time you write down the day's date, you're saying he's here. God damn it, man. What? I had no idea. So what? If I, so, so if I write Thursday, December I, I kind of thought our, yeah. our calendars were based on the Roman lunar calendar and well, the we, they added right, yeah. and they added thing time to it to but if the, you put the year 2017 you acknowledge that Jesus is here with you yeah, I, did, I had no idea I think I'm going to convert <sighs> that yeah you just converted me 
I guess Praise perhaps, be to God. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps Robertson is only playing dumb to please the uneducated Doug Dynasty fan base. <laughs> yeah, this is this probably quite sure. So, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna start following the Chinese calendar. <laughs> oh God! Well, you know what? The article goes on, but I'm not. I'm not gonna give it. Mayan calendar. <laughs> there we go. Oh wait a minute! That one they didn't. They didn't carry it on past what two or three years. Yeah, twenty twelve. Yeah, so yeah. we can't follow that one because we'd have to write a new calendar. That's right. Oh, you just have to restart it, I guess. Or restart. Well, yeah, I guess you could reuse yeah. the calendar. I wonder which buck tomb we're in. I don't know. <laughs> Does it matter? <laughs> oh, well, well thank the you, Chinese sir. calendar. What 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 year are we in the Chinese calendar? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. But that's okay. Anyway, thank you, sir. And we'll be right back with Dr. Richard Carrier. Stay with us. Hi, I'm the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson from the Legion of Reason Diversion. Join me and my co-hosts, Christine Shelska, Twyla, and Nate Phelps, as we explore issues at the intersection of atheism, humanism, and skepticism. Topics range from alternative medicine to the interference of religion in public policy. We often have special guests to help us understand the topic du jour. Previous guests include biologist Jerry Coyne, ex-Muslim author Ali Rizvi, philosopher Peter Bogosian, and the late physicist Victor Stanger. You can watch us on the Legion of Reason YouTube channel or subscribe to the audio version through your favorite podcatchers such as iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to like the Legion of Reason Facebook page. If your skepticism is socially conscious and doesn't take itself too seriously, you might like life, the universe, and everything else. Great comfort, his big stumper was literally, which came first, the chicken or the egg? A lot of the interviews took place in front of a building that said liberal arts. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing that they're not all science majors. (laughs) Life, the universe, and everything else. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else. I don't know, Zoom? Is that still a thing? Whoever is led to believe that species are mutable will do good service by conscientiously expressing his conviction. For only thus can the load of prejudice by which this subject is overwhelmed be removed. So what you know about natural selection? Go ahead and ask a question and see where the answer gets you. Try being passive-aggressive. Hey, guys, with us online, we have Dr. Richard Carrier. He's a historian, and uh, he was he's our friend, and he's he a snappy is. dresser and a snazzy dancer. <laughs> Dr. Carrier, welcome back to the Fraser Valley. Hi, yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome to come back anytime you please. We loved having you here when you were doing the... Uh, Should you say that yeah, at the end of the interview? The you don't say yeah. that at the beginning. You say that at the end oh, of the interview. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I may, I no, may, repeat, I may repeat it at the end. I'm, I'm gracious <laughs> that way. <laughs> Dr. Carrier, uh, you know, uh, you're very well known in the States. You might not be as well known up here in north of the 49th parallel. Would you be so kind to give us a brief introduction as to who Richard Carrier is? Yeah, um, I have a PhD from Columbia University in ancient history and have a long history of uh, doing atheist activism and and philosophy and and religious history and stuff online and in print. Uh, So if people want to know way more about me, you you can go to richardcarrier.info, that's .info, 
online that has my website, has my Facebook page, my Twitter account, uh, my blog, and and my curriculum vitae, and all my books mm-hmm. and everything. Uh, I've written eight books. Uh, the eighth is coming out uh, the end of this year, and um, and yeah, I do. I write about ancient science. I write about uh, origins of Christianity. I write about uh, contemporary philosophy. I write about like what what philosophical beliefs should atheists have, not just uh, what we don't believe in, but what we should believe in. So I've written things on that and so on. And, and that's the kind of thing that I do. I, I tour both countries and speak on my books and other topics. Uh, and uh, and that's basically my life. Okay. Well, since, since we, uh, you, you talked briefly about that, we might as well promote your new book. So tell us about your new book, Doctor. Yeah, that's The Scientist in the Early Roman Empire. Ooh. And it's uh, it's the lengthy sequel to what came out last year. It's available now, and that's science education mm-hmm. in the early Roman Empire. Uh, and that book, which people can get now, uh, is basically it's a short little book about the entire education system of ancient Rome, including uh, pop culture. Like, where did people who didn't go to school where how did they learn things? You know, from juries and plays and public speeches and things like that. Uh, so the whole education system, with a focus on the science content, what what kind of science was conveyed to whom at what levels. Uh, and so on. What was science education like in antiquity? And uh, what does that represent about the values of the ancient world? And, and often in comparing it to the mid- Middle Ages, for example. Mm. And then the book that's coming out this year is The Scientist in the Early Roman Empire, which expands on that. That's, you know, that now they got the education part covered, I'm covering the rest of the story of who were scientists in the early Roman Empire? What did people think about them? Uh, what did they do? What did they accomplish? Was there scientific progress? Did they, were they aware? of progress in the sciences, uh, those kinds of questions. Uh, and it, it really will be basically a full history of science up to the Roman Empire with a focus on the status of things uh, during the Roman Empire. Do you feel in your research you've discovered maybe that um, the, the, the ancients, uh, let's, for lack of a better term, let's call them the ancients, have a, a natural scientific curiosity as much as we have now, maybe less, maybe more? Yes, in fact, it's very distinctive of uh, Greece and Rome, uh, is this full integration of the value uh, and merits of curiosity. It, it was fundamental, both religious, among the, both the religious and the non-religious, uh, pagans and atheists or uh, agnostics of the period, pantheists you might call them, uh, of that period were all very much highly esteemed curiosity about nature that drove scientific inquiry. Uh, it's very, very different from what position the Christians took and definitely solidified in the Middle Ages, which is curiosity is dangerous. Uh, it leads to heresy. So they were very, very suspicious of curiosity. It was not a value they, they supported. The, uh, the, uh, the, the Christian attitude of curiosity is not a virtue. Is that a, a uniquely Christian thing or is that more of a most, most religions had that kind of mentality at the time? Uh, it really does seem to be uniquely Christian. Uh, it may derive from some of the more conservative, radical sects of Judaism from which Christianity arose, uh, but it wasn't really a typical feature of Judaism even. So uh, it does look like something that was kind of like a virulent new attitude in Christianity uh, that Christianity introduced to the world, and then of course you know, once they took over the world, or the Western world, uh, they solidified that as a fundamental to our culture. And then, you know, by the time you get to the Renaissance, you have these these few Christian mavericks who want to rebel against this Christian model of being anti-curiosity. And they had to fight really hard, uh, rhetorically and, and in every other way, uh, to get curiosity respected again. And, and really, you look around today, they, they still haven't fully won. Uh, 
there are still the, the number of Christians who are anti-curiosity just shrinks and shrinks. So there are still a lot of anti-science Christians today, uh, but uh, but they did ultimately prevail by the time you get to the scientific revolution, and that was actually what led to the scientific revolution was finally overthrowing this thousand-year-old Christian regime that was anti-curiosity, and they were anti other things too. They were anti uh, the idea of evidence as the final authority; that evidence can trump any authority. It can trump the Bible. It can trump the Pope. Uh, no authority can stand above evidence, and therefore you always go to the evidence uh, to argue a case. This respect for empiricism as the final authority on on facts of nature and, and everything else. Um, that was also not really integrated in Christianity. Christians were very much against that. The Bible came first, usually. Um, and they were willing to compromise on that in some respects during the Middle Ages, but you still had factions who were against allowing evidence to trump an authority. And that had to be argued back again. So the pagans already believed that evidence can trump authority. They, they were not a, a scripture-based religion. Um, but it took a while to like recover that once it was lost in the Middle Ages, this respect for empiricism. Uh, and this other idea that you can have progress, uh, belief in progress, that there is progress in knowledge, that it's valuable and worth pursuing, uh, that was very much a pagan idea. And, and you see it all throughout Greece and Rome. Uh, they would not only believed in the value of progress, they, they recognized progress existed and, and could occur, and so it wasn't impossible. When you read the early Christian writers, they're all talking about, well, scientific knowledge doesn't really make any progress, that it's all just conjecture, it's just a bunch of human opinions arguing with each other, it never gets anywhere. They, they, they sort of lost this belief that there could be progress in knowledge, uh, in, in knowledge of the natural world. And so that kind of disappeared in the Middle Ages. And once again, that had to be fought for again in the Renaissance. It had to be, you know, certain factions of, among uh, Christian intellectuals had to re-argue for this. It is make a case to say, like, you know, actually progress is possible and it is valuable. And, and they had to argue for both points. And, and that, had to, that argument had to prevail uh, for the scientific revolution finally to, to occur. So uh, it was all of these things, these three scientific values, these three underlying values of science were very much integrated into paganism, uh, certainly intellectual paganism, uh, the paganism of the literate elite uh, of of the period before Christianity took over, and then they were lost in the Middle Ages, and we had to get them back again. Essentially, uh, certain Christian authors had to repaganize Christianity uh, into accepting these values before they, the scientific revolution could finally uh, occur. That is incredibly interesting. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you you have such a a, a curious you have a you're you're a curious individual to begin with. How did you get interested in this particular um, part of, of history, going from the uh, mythicism to to science? How how did you d decide to explore? Um, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny because it, it, this is the order of the books coming out, but really the order of the inquiry is the other way around. Um, so <laughs> I'll tell the story. Uh, what happened was um, when I decided to go to college uh, and finally figured out my major, uh, I was getting more involved with the secular web. Now back and this is the the mid '90s, late '90s, uh, the secular web was the central clearinghouse on the internet for atheist activism and atheist information. It was the library of atheist literature and counter-apologetics and so on. Uh, I was getting involved more in uh, the atheism movement, but also I fell in love with history in particular as, as a field, and especially the Roman Empire. When we did the Western Civ unit and we did Rome, the Roman Empire, I really fell in love with the culture, this concept of this this empire and this, this culture and this society that existed and then disappeared, and, and a lot of what we do today is a recovery of the things that we lost from that time. Uh, so I figured I could do double duty. If I study uh, Roman Empire, I would get the languages, I would get the historical and cultural context, the literary context, so I could also um, 
study a culture that I really found fascinating and do a, a subject that I really liked, which is history, and also apply those skills to help the atheist movement and become an expert that could question Christian apologetics, especially like if they, they talk about what the Greek says in the Bible or something like that, I, I could actually be useful to the atheism movement. So I saw that as sort of like two birds with one stone kind of thing and make, make double duty. And so when I went to Berkeley, I did uh, my BA in history with a minor in classical civilizations, um, specialized in Greek and Latin and so on. And then I got um, a PhD got into the PhD program at Columbia University in New York. And uh, there, you know, I did all of the, the usual things you do, you know, when you're doing ancient history, you papyrology and Greek linguistics and uh, ancient cultures and ancient social history and all that stuff. But when it came time to decide what my dissertation would be on, uh, I sort of like, I had a lot of different ideas of what I wanted to do. But just by, by coincidence, uh, Rodney Stark, this Christian apologist and sociologist, had come out with... Uh, some books arguing, and others, and he cites others like Stanley Yaki and these other authors who, who have all these Christian authors who argue that uh, the, the ancients were anti-science and it was Christians that, Christianity and Christian thought that was necessary for the rise of modern science. Yeah, of course. Um, wow. And, and this, this is a ridiculous thesis, but it's a very common apologetic, and it's, a, it's an example of the kind of revisionist history that you see coming from Christians. They like to rewrite the history of America to make, Christi uh, make America a Christian nation, for example. Uh, but they do the same thing with science. It's like, oh, Christianity was the savior of science. And in fact, Stanley Yaki wrote a book where he literally, it's called The Savior of Science, and it's about Christianity and Jesus being the, the savior of science. Oh, um, now, when I was studying ancient history and then interacting with Christian apologetics and came into contact with this, I was just outraged because their knowledge of the ancient world and the claims they were making about ancient authors and ancient cultures were so wildly wrong. Uh, and so I did some podcasts on that, uh, the equivalent of podcasts back then. Uh, I wrote an article for it uh, that appeared in um, the Christian Delusion uh, anthology by John Loftus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, in that, there's a whole I have a whole chapter dedicated to refuting this this bizarre revisionist historicism about uh, the role of Christianity in, in creating science. It's completely false. But at this time, I realized one of the interesting questions that comes out of this is. Why didn't the scientific revolution happen in ancient Rome when they had everything in place? They were doing everything that necessary for it. Why didn't it occur? Uh, and so what and there are a lot of other historians, historians of the scientific revolution who ask that question. And so I got a book uh, that covers the historiography of this. And there was a whole section in there about uh, why it didn't happen in the ancient world and where this this author, um, uh, Flores Cohen, goes through um, the, all what all these other historians had said. Uh, and, and I thought I was outraged again because all of these things are massively false about the ancient world. Uh, and this was outside the whole atheist Christianity debate. This was actually within just a mainstream objective historical field where there was this debate about why didn't that occur in the ancient world. And there are a lot of these theories being proposed that were easily refuted, but no one had really sat down and listed the evidence refuting them. And so I realized there's a dissertation here. I should do my dissertation on why the scientific revolution didn't occur in the ancient world. And so I, I diagrammed that and wrote my prospectus and handed it to my uh, advisor, um, um, William V. Harris at Columbia University. And he said, okay, this is 10 dissertations. Pick one. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and he was right. Uh, there, it was, uh, there was too much. So I, I picked one thing, which was attitudes 
Uh, one of the arguments is that uh, the ancient world was so hostile or indifferent to science and scientists that there just was no push for scientific progress or anything like that. Uh, so the, the attitudes were hostile or indifferent. Uh, and so I said, well, that's an easy one to refute and covers a lot of bases. So I'm going to do my dissertation on that. And so I wrote a prospectus for that. It got approved by committee and everything. And so that was my dissertation. And I, I completed that in 2008. Uh, and the... the uh, uh, you know, the, the official title is Attitudes Towards the Fusikos, which means uh, natural philosopher in the early Roman Empire. Uh, 100 BC to 313 AD was the period I covered. And now, now that was 2008, got my dissertation, got my PhD, and immediately the economy collapsed. Uh, freezes on hire as for all humanities majors. It was basically impossible for a new PhD in the humanities to get hired. So uh, I went to my fans at the time and said, well, well, I can't get a job, so uh, now I have a PhD in ancient history. I will apply this PhD to any subject you want uh, if you can raise $20,000 to cancel uh, the student debt I had accumulated up to that point. And um, my fans and readers came through. They raised the twenty grand, and unanimously, all the donors said, Historicity of Jesus, we want you to apply your PhD to the Historicity of Jesus. So I basically did an entire postdoc research program. Another six years did a whole other dissertation, in effect, on the historicity of Jesus. I mean, if anybody reads the book on the historicity of Jesus uh, that came out of this, uh, they'll see that that's basically another dissertation. Uh, but I did that uh, to to earn that twenty grand to get that debt canceled, uh, and also I found it very fascinating and, and very interesting. Uh, and so I did all of that, but I had to put my dissertation on the shelf and collect dust. I couldn't convert it into a book because I was busy doing uh, the Jesus historicity question. So I finished that, uh, 2014, published on the historicity of Jesus, uh, and realized, well, I should blow the dust off my dissertation and turn that into some books now. And so I went back uh, to my PhD roots and my dissertation and turned it into two books. One is the science education book that came out last year, and the next is the one that's coming out this year. You are so creative and resourceful. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, and I totally understand when the professor says that's 10 dissertations because you take yeah. any one of Carrie's book and they're big books. They're, yeah. It's so true, yes. You've got well, a, you know, you've I, got I a lifetime of books sitting and just waiting to be written. Yeah, it's true. And you know, I, I people often comment like, your books are so thorough. Like, that's like, you just really cover everything. And and I, I learned that from uh, William Harris, who is my advisor at Columbia University. All his books are kind of like the definitive book on the subject he writes on, such that no one in the field can write on that subject honestly and not interact with his book on whatever it is. So he did ancient literacy. Uh, he did uh, Roman imperialism. Uh, he did uh, ancient rage. So he did a whole book on uh, beliefs and attitudes about rage and anger. In, in the Roman Empire. Uh, he did a book on dreams, uh, dreams and hallucinations in the, in the ancient Roman Empire, dreams and religious experiences. Uh, so he, every time he does one of these books, they're like really just a decisive, thorough, he just beats every bush clean. Like there's just every fact is in there. And so I learned that from him. Like, like if you're going to do a book on something, make it a book that, that people have to read if they're going to cover that subject, that it's, it's going to be definitive in that field. Um, and so I, I do, a lot of my books are built that way. And that's why they do, they are packed with so much information and so much facts and so much research. Well, uh, I'm going to move on to the mythicism of Jesus, obviously. But before I do that, I get a quick question to ask. Uh, you know how the uh, Islam was at the forefront of science for the longest time, but then they kind of turned their back to it uh, somewhere around. Yeah. I think it was the 15th century or something like that? Oh, way earlier than that, actually. Oh, way earlier um, than that. So what happened was... Well, my, um, my, my, my question was, was Christianity from the get-go always against science and curiosity, or was it uh, did they evolve the way Islam did too? 
No, they were they were worse at the beginning. Um, they, they were very anti all these values that we just talked about. And they just started softening over the centuries throughout the Middle Ages. It took a long time, about a thousand years, for them to finally start shining to it. And even then, there were huge factions still against uh, adopting these values. Uh, they still had to be fought for even then. Um, so, so Christianity started out maximally hostile to science and then sort of got weaker on it over time and eventually gave in. Um, Islam was different. Uh, the Muslims started out kind of anti-elitist, really. Uh, so it wasn't really that they were anti-science, it's they were just sort of anti-intellectual in a way. Because uh, it was really a mass movement of, of people making political moves that were not part of the intellectual elite originally. Now that changed. Once they acquired an empire, they had to have, they had to infuse and bring in all of these, you know, intellectuals, people, and so on. Uh, and these were like scholars who were highly educated uh, Muslims. So you get about right, roughly around like 800 AD, you have tons of these Muslim scholars who are now going back and looking at these, you know, this lost or ancient literature from the Greeks and Romans, and are starting to translate some of it into Arabic uh, and or trying to riff on the ideas, maybe improve on it. Uh, and so it became very popular to sort of explore uh, natural science because they were fascinated by the ancient Greeks having done so. Now this went on for about two, three, four hundred years at most. It's really around, I think, I can't remember the exact time, but it's like 1100-ish, 1100 or 1200, where there's a, a very anti-science push. Uh, and it's the same thing that happened in early Christianity. Uh, the, the imams, the, uh, the, the theologians, the uh, Islamic religious leaders saw what was happening in the pursuit of science as dangerous, that it was this sort of threatening curiosity and this threatening of authority uh, that was um, uh, basically contributing to heresy, contributing to heresy, contributing to agnosticism, contrib contributing to infidels. Uh, and so they, they sort of really shut it down. Uh, they started punishing it. They started uh, uh, you know, defunding it and so on. And so they became very hostile to science. And it pretty much killed science in, in the Islamic world. And it was never recovered after that um, until you know, Western influence at well after the scientific revolution. Yeah, and one can argue that even to this day, it still hasn't recovered at all. Well, yeah, they're, I mean, they've, you know, they're, they've adopted science, but they're, you know, 100, 200 years behind everybody. Um, you know, so uh, in terms of their social integration of science in their society. Uh, so, if, so you can have, you know, there are Muslim nations making scientific advances and doing scientific research and stuff and using science. But their societies are very much cut off uh, from this. They're, they're not being uh, educated very well, although arguably neither are Americans being educated very well in the sciences. But if you compare, you know, uh, other nations, Canada, Europe, Australia, Japan, the, the way science is fully integrated into the culture of those societies so that even people who are just mere high school graduates know tons of science, that's not as much the case in the Islamic world. There's, there, it, it is, it's not that they're not teaching science, it's that the, the, the way they're integrating the values of science into society is, is much, much poorer, and it's about 100 to 200 years behind the rest of the world in terms of what we've woken up to and decided to do. Okay. Uh, let's go back to uh, mythicism and the, the history of Jesus Christ. You you obviously came out as a myth mythicist, and uh, you're one of few who actually did so. What is it that you think? Why is it? Why is it that you think that Jesus was a mythical figure and not a historical person? Yeah, I was surprised by that finding. Actually, um, I was very hostile to that notion. I was very much defending the the sense the consensus position that obviously Jesus existed. It's ridiculous 
to argue that he didn't. And uh, every time someone would bring this to me, they would they would come with these ridiculously false claims. It was very similar to the the apologetics that I was dealing with um, uh, that got me into ancient science. Was this idea like everything you're saying about the ancient world is false? Uh, these facts you're claiming are false. And uh, so this is really badly researched, badly argued. It's this idea of mythicism. It's just ridiculous. You really it's crank theory. You shouldn't give it up. Until several people whose uh, opinions are respected, these are not cranks, these are like, you know, people of good judgment, said, you know, that's true for all this, that other stuff, but there's this book by Earl Doherty called The Jesus Puzzle that isn't like any of that stuff. I think he gets all that facts right, or at least we'd like you, with your knowledge of the ancient world, to actually read the book and see, like, do you think he's a crank too, or do you think he's actually onto something? And I said, well, I got enough requests to do this. I said, okay, I'll do that. Uh, and I read the book, and I have to say I was surprisingly impressed uh, by the book. And, and they're right. I mean, he, he is uh, largely an amateur. He's got uh, a bachelor's degree in classics. But um, his book's really good to the point that, and I wrote a review and I said, well, actually, he's got me agnostic now because he's pointed out some serious problems with the defense of historicity. And I do not see anywhere in the field a, a really sound def uh, you know, re response to this. Like the, the, the theory of historicity is really in trouble. Uh, and the way I approached his book was that this book looks like an unfinished dissertation. Like it was at least dissertation quality. There were a lot of fixes and changes that would have been needed for it to pass as a dissertation. So I sort of looked at it as someone who would review a dissertation as if I was on his dissertation committee. And I would say, this is close to passing. You have to fix some things. But, but it would actually be a viable dissertation if you fixed those things. And I wrote a review online where I pointed that out. Like, well, these are the things that need to be fixed. Uh, but otherwise, it's pretty good. And I was surprised by this. And so I, I came out as that, like, well, now I'm not so sure uh, about the historicity issue. And then, then of course, when I did the... Um, uh, got the my fans to generate basically a postdoc research grant to actually study this subject. I said, okay, this will be my chance to actually really sink in and see if like can I really can I defend historicity? Like, is is does it hold up? Like, can I go and do what the field has not done and actually defend historicity against these pretty good arguments by Doherty? Uh, and I tried and tried and tried. I spent six years and it just got worse and worse and worse. The evidence got worse, not better. Uh, the more I studied it, the the more suspicious the evidence became, the more the evidence disappeared or dissolved. And the moment you start picking at a thread, it just unwinds. Uh, and so by the time I finished, I was like, actually, I think odds are Jesus didn't exist. I think Do the Doherty thesis is fundamentally correct, that Christianity began with a revelatory being. Jesus was an archangel who just appeared to people in visions, not as a guy walking around Galilee. Uh, and that his his story of taking on uh, the flesh of a Jewish Davidic body and um, being crucified by the, by the great powers and so forth, that this was a, a cosmic drama, something that happened essentially in outer space, very similar to what was taught about Osiris. Um, and that's in the neighboring province of Egypt. They had a mystery religion where the public story was that Osiris was a pharaoh who lived on earth in history. And they have these gospels with him walking around and doing stuff in history. And then he dies and then his body is torn up and then his uh, wife reassembles his body and resurrects him and so on. Uh, but the, 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 the story that was told behind that was that there was no such pharaoh, that this is actually, these are all allegories. The true story was. And we can confirm that, by the way. There was no Osiris pharaoh. He's a non-existent person. So the, the stories putting him in history were false, for sure. 
but the the priests taught people who were inducted into the religion that no, actually, that's all allegory. The reality is that Osiris descends in outer space below the moon, where he's killed by another god up in uh, you know up in outer space just below the moon, and then he resurrects there and reascends to heaven, and thereby re- keeps renewing his power over life and death and power over the universe. And so there was actually this cosmic Osiris drama going on that was actually behind the fake biographies of Osiris. And that's the way the religion was teaching it. And this model, I think, fits exactly the evidence we have for Christianity. I think Christianity was doing exactly the same thing. They had really the real story was this cosmic drama that was revealed through hidden messages in scripture and through revelations and dreams. And then, you know, lifetime later, people started writing these fake stories, just like they did for Osiris, making him a, making Jesus into a person who walked around in history. Uh, and so when you look at the order of evidence, you look at all the telltale signs, you look at the parallels and so on, it actually, this fits the evidence better. And I think that's what actually happened. But the historicizing church uh, dominated, essentially. They, they became the ones in charge in the fourth century. And so they were the ones who got to decide which books would be preserved for us to see them and in what condition they'd be in. So uh, they doctored a lot of manuscripts, they destroyed a lot of manuscripts, they threw, a light, threw away a lot of stuff. So we only get to see the evidence they want us to see, and they only wanted us to see evidence supporting the historicity of Jesus because their claim to authority in the church was based on this sort of their own fabricated myth of being descendants of the first apostles who were handpicked by Jesus in life. So they invented this sort of political story that justified their dominance uh, over the churches of Christianity, uh, and they used that and, and fabricated tons of stuff. So we have you know tons of fake letters, tons of fake gospels, not just the ones that are in uh, the canon, uh, and tons of other uh, fake stories and fake histories and stuff to try and justify the historicity of Jesus. So the lens that we're seeing history through has been hugely distorted, so it's, it's kind of like a detective novel. You have to look and see, like, okay people are scamming us for the evidence. We have to like figure out what really happened that explains this sequence of events, this sequence of evidence that we are allowed to see. And what snuck through this filter? What what did they forget to destroy? And that kind of thing. Uh, so it's a really challenging task to get at what really happened. But we have enough information, I think, to have a pretty good idea that it's probably the same story that happened in Osiris cult, that it was really started as a revelatory being, undergoing a cosmic drama, and then he was transferred to history in myths later, um, and that that was eventually sold as the truth. And and so I, the book, you know, on the history of City of Jesus, I go through all the evidence and all the parallels and everything that we have. And I also, in that book, of course, that book's peer-reviewed. So it's actually a peer-reviewed monograph published by Sheffield Phoenix, uh, which pub- publishes off of the campus of the University of Sheffield. And uh, in, in that everywhere. book, I... I, I eliminated, I don't have anything in there that I couldn't corroborate. So if I couldn't find it factually attested in the ancient sources, it's not in there. So if you want to see uh, the difference between uh, well-founded arguments for this and a lot of the garbage that you see on the internet, a lot of dubious claims, like the Zeitgeist film and all of that stuff, uh, this is the book to get, which because it, it actually has the well-researched, thoroughly sourced stuff, and it excludes all the things that I couldn't corroborate. So there are a lot of claims made about the god Horus, for example, on the internet that don't hold up. There are a lot of claims made about Mithras that don't hold up. Uh, But what's in my book is the stuff that does hold up. Wow. Okay. And you know, to to me, that is absolutely stunning. And I I think, uh, personally, as a a layperson, I think what speaks most to me about the uh, mythicism of Jesus is the lack of contemporaries of his time. You know, there's there's nobody that seems to have walked with Jesus to ever said anything about it. I mean, we need, haven't even found a receipt for carpenter tools from him or something. Like that. <laughs> you think we'd find something. 
Yeah. Um, now, so this is interesting. So uh, if if you're going to believe the Gospels are literally true, then that's a problem, because Jesus in the Gospels is portrayed as fabulously famous. He's famous all across Syria. He's doing all these famous, amazing, hugely public things. There's no way no contemporary would notice this or mention it or describe it in, in the sources. But the response that's usually given, and this is the response given by secular historians, uh, Christians use it too, although they, they, when they do, they're contradicting themselves, because uh, the, the secular historians can do this, and they can say, actually, you know, Jesus really didn't do any of those famous things. The Gospels are just making a bunch of stuff up about him. He actually was never that famous. He was just a total nobody. And it took a hundred years or more before for his cult to grow large enough for anyone to even notice it. Uh, and therefore, we don't expect any references to him in contemporary uh, sources so that we can't argue from the silence of the sources that he didn't exist. Now, that to me is a valid argument. Uh, now, it doesn't help Christians because the Christians have to admit that the Gospels are making tons of stuff up about Jesus, that Jesus was actually a total nobody who was high, hardly influential at all. Uh, and, and even his sect didn't even get any notice hardly until like 100 years later. Um, that's, that's a hard pill already for Christians to swallow. But secular historians are completely comfortable with this. And in fact, it is kind of like the mainstream view, or at least the most common view, is that Jesus was actually this total nobody. And it was just, it just took, you know, lifetimes later for that to spin out into something bigger. So at the time, no one, no one noticed him or cared. And so that's why we don't have contemporary attestations of Jesus. And that's an entirely credible theory. There are tons of sages and wise men and so on. That, that were not attested or were barely attested by their contemporaries because they were such minor figures. And there were actually more famous messianic figures in the early first century in Judea that did get noticed in Josephus, for example. Uh, Jesus, the secular historians argue, just wasn't that popular. He just wasn't that well-known. These guys are way more famous, um, usually because they were involved in huge military actions but uh, or, or uh, suppression of their cult and by the tens of thousands. So, uh, so I don't... And in the book, I also I don't score that as arguing for the non-existence of Jesus, the fact that we don't have contemporary attestation, because I'm willing to grant that Jesus probably, if he existed historically, he, he probably was a nobody. And so we don't expect that contemporary attestation. But if you're someone who needs to insist that Jesus was as famous as the Gospels portray, then you have a problem. Your, your theory contradicts the, the silence in the sources. So I discuss that in the book. Yeah, because at the time it was also, uh, you know, messianic end of the world cults were not yeah. were actually quite common, and Jesus yeah, certainly yeah. There, wasn't. It the was only a favorite. whole fad. Yeah, it was. A, there was a huge rage for uh, you know apocalyptic messiahs at the time. It, it was, and, and you know, Jesus would fit historically. He would fit into that pattern if uh, if we could actually tie him to if we could actually verify any of the facts about him that tie him to those movements. Um, we can't, unfortunately, but. But yeah, there were tons of these things going on. So from a secular perspective, the historicity of Jesus is defensible uh, on that ground. Um, I, I think the problems start to arise when we look at how similar Jesus is to other demigods like him being bandied about throughout the empire uh, that didn't exist but had the exact same pattern, where they were revelatory beings that had fake biographies written about them. And then we have the problem with the letters of Paul, which are weirdly silent about the historicity of Jesus. Like, he never mentions anyone meeting Jesus in life. The first time anyone ever gets to see Jesus is after he died. And the only way Paul says we know that he was executed or, or that he was crucified and buried is from Scripture, and that's his only source. And he, He's getting revelations from Jesus, he's finding things in Scripture, but we have no reference to him picking disciples, we have no reference to his ministry, we have no reference to him performing miracles. Basically, the whole Gospel story is not in Paul. Uh, so... 
that's really weird. And Paul is our earliest source. He's writing letters in the 50s AD, decades before the Gospels came to be written. And there are, they're the earliest surviving documents uh, about Christianity. Uh, and there are other telltale pieces of evidence as well that I, I go through in the book. But uh, when you look at the evidence, the sequence of evidence this way, objectively, it looks like the same storyline that we see for all these other demigods uh, in all these other national religious cultures, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Syrians, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, they all created their own versions of these sort of savior heroes. Uh, and Je Christianity just looks like uh, they were taking Jesus and doing a Jewish version of this same fad. They were just basically Judaizing uh, this fashion and creating their own sort of their Jewish Osiris in a sense. Hmm. So so, so you, you mentioned that Paul was one of the earliest writings that we have. Uh, so you say the Gospels were written after? Yeah. So, so the earliest one is Mark, as we all know? Yes, um, do do yeah, that, that is the mainstream view, uh, and I think it's correct. I think the earliest gospel we have is Mark, and Mark may have invented the genre. Uh, I do not buy into any arguments that there were that we can confirm earlier gospels existed, um, and all the other subsequent gospels just basically riff off of Mark and basically expand on Mark uh, and and borrow Mark's material and, and rewrite it and add to it and so on. Uh, so really, it's Mark. And Mark is clearly writing after the Jewish War, which ended in 70 AD. In fact, the Gospel of Mark is very much a response to the war, because the war was one of the most existentially devastating events in Jewish history, because it led to literally the destruction of the Jewish temple and the Jewish temple cult on which the entire salvation system of Judaism was based. So this was an existential crisis in Judaism. This is like, oh, how would God, why would God allow the destruction of his own house and the destruction of the, the whole system of salvation by which we depend? Why would he allow that to happen? And of course, you have all these different sects of Jews coming up with their own responses to this. You had the rabbinical Jews had a response to this, and the, the, some of the fringe anti-temple Jewish sects had responses to this, and so on. Well, the, Mark is the Christian response, and, and Mark's response is, oh, well, actually, our Savior, Jesus, God sent him to replace the temple, so he allowed it to be destroyed so that you can all become Christians now, so you won't be distracted by this obsolete salvation system. We have a new salvation system. It's much better, and this is the gospel. This is the message that you should obey sense. and follow. How so convenient. It, Mark is kind of writing that story, in a sense. Yeah, that's very, very convenient. That makes sense. <laughs> now, I've, I've, uh, Richard, maybe you can settle an argument. I've been having an argument with some guys uh, on uh, online there, and uh, one of them claims that Polycarp was a, uh, a student of John, and John himself claims to be one of the disciples of Jesus. Is there any truth to this? <laughs> no. Um, no, Polycarp himself doesn't say that he was uh, a student of John uh, the disciple. Um now, I can't remember the exact sequence of events on that of who's claiming what when. Uh, let me see if I can check that. But uh, no, he, he's, his references, insofar as we have any references to them at all, uh, there's a different John uh, who's not a disciple. The, the earliest reference we have to anyone claiming to know anyone who is supposedly a disciple is not Polycarp. Polycarp comes decades later. The earliest is uh, Papias. Now, we don't have the writings of Papias. We have quotations from the writings of Papias. The Christians, later Christians, didn't like Papias' books. So they didn't preserve it. But quotations of him survive in other literature, uh, other Christian literature. And uh, in one of it, Papias says that he knew people who knew disciples. But notice that's a, a I know, oh, a friend of a friend. Yeah, friend you know, of this a friend is, of a friend. we're already like multiple uh, stages away. 
Polycarp himself never met any disciples. Um, he, he met people who claimed to have met disciples. And, and that's a problem when you're getting into this period of uh, this whole idea of how are you going to gain authority in the church? Oh, yeah, now you've got these gospels that claim they're all these apostles. What are you going to do? Or these disciples that Jesus chose, what are you going to do? You're going to claim you knew one of these guys. Oh, he appointed me. I met this guy. Yeah, he totally approved my version of Christianity. Yes. And so you've got this kind of like bogus uh, pedigree that gets invented by people who want to really promote their authority. They want to claim they knew some disciple who taught them something. Uh, but we have no access to any evidence that that actually happened. So we actually can't verify uh, any connection to any disciples. And in fact, uh, all the evidence we have, we have no evidence of any disciple or apostle from the original uh, origination of the sect surviving past the year 70, uh, the, the Jewish war. We have, we have no letters, we have no uh, people talking about actually having met any of them, or any, any evidence that any of them survived beyond 70, which means none of them, so far as we can tell, were alive when the Gospels started being written, which is precisely the most suspicious time to start writing the Gospels. Huh. <laughs> well, there we go. I think I won that argument. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, so... Um... Of course, I, I, I got to do a quick uh, detour to Josephus, because whenever you talk to a Christian, Josephus, 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 oh my, oh my it always comes up. Can you please settle the argument here with Josephus? Did, did, did Josephus' writings really prove that Jesus existed? No, um, no. Uh, in fact, uh, there are two references to Jesus and Josephus. Now, you can assume that, let's assume that they're true. Um, they're not, but let's assume that, that <laughs> Josephus actually wrote those passages. Um, one clearly derives, and it's demonstrably derives from the Gospels. Uh, and so that means that Josephus did not independently check that the Gospels were telling the truth. Uh, so if, if we're going to believe that passage, uh, that's not useful as evidence, because it, it just proves that the Gospels existed when he wrote, which we already know. It doesn't prove that he actually verified that there was a historical Jesus. Uh, and the other reference, he, he sort of casually refers to a James who gets executed, who was the brother of the Jesus, who is called Christ, um, which could easily just be a mistake, uh, because all the Christians were called the brothers of the Lord. They were all called the brothers of Christ uh, through adoption. But when you get baptized at the time, and I document this in On the History of City of Jesus, when you get baptized, um, you are literally adopted as a son of God. God adopts you as his son. And so you become a brother of the son of God, the, the, the firstborn son of God, which is Jesus. So all Christians are the brothers of, of, uh, of Jesus, essentially. So even if Josephus actually wrote that reference to James being executed uh, and being a brother of Jesus, the one called Christ, uh, that could easily just be a telephone game garble where he, he heard that the Christians said, oh yeah, the, one of the brothers of the Lord was killed, not understanding that that means uh, occultically, not, not biologically, a brother of the Lord. Now, that's already, so that already gives us, the, the evidence is useless, because we can't verify that Josephus actually checked and confirmed that there was actually a biological brother of Jesus or anything like that. It gets worse when you actually look at the evidence uh, surrounding all of this, where both passages are clearly interpolations. They were added later. Josephus never wrote them. Um, the uh, the one full passage that matches the Gospels, pretty much all scholars who are not G Christian fundamentalists agree that it's been forged, uh, that someone has at least meddled with the text, if not fully inserted it. And in fact, the evidence is very strong, line by line. It, none of it would have been written by Josephus. I talk about this in uh, On the History of City of Jesus. Lots of scholars agree with that, that, that it's a forgery. Uh, Josephus didn't write it. The other passage where he references Jesus, uh, or James, the brother of Jesus, um, the part, the one line, just one, the, basically the two words that says, the one called Christ, uh, that 
specific line, just the idea of attributing Jesus to being the Christ, that appears to be an interpolation that someone put in accidentally. It looks like a, what's called a scribal note. Oftentimes in manuscripts, and we have many examples of this in all kinds of literature from antiquity, a scribe or a scholar would write a note in the margins or in between the lines, and a later copyist who's, who's making a copy mistakes that for accidentally omitted text and therefore tries to be helpful and inserts that into the text thinking that it was accidentally left out, when in really, reality it was just someone writing a note in the margins. Uh, and we have lots of examples of these kinds of, they're called scribal, or accidental interpolations. You have lots of these uh, interpolations of marginal notes in ancient manuscripts. The external evidence very much confirms that that's what happened in this case, that, that Origen, who's a Christian scholar of the early third century, had no actual knowledge of this being in Josephus's manuscripts at the time. He, he confused a manuscript of Hegesippus, which is this Christian author, with Josephus, and, uh, and, and that led to all kinds of confusion later. Uh, but the line wasn't there at the time. Uh, so so the, that one, those two words weren't there at the time. Originally, it looks like when Josephus wrote that passage about James, the brother of Jesus, he's talking about a different Jesus, uh, an actual, the Jesus who gets appointed uh, to, re uh, to replace the guy who killed James in the story. It's a whole long story. But anyway, I've written an article under peer review demonstrating this, uh, outlining all of the evidence that shows that the interpolation occurred sometimes in, in the third century after Origen and before Eusebius. And we've got, we've got evidence to document that. Um, my paper on that, which uh, was published in uh, academic journals, is reproduced in my book, Hitler, Homer, Bible, Christ, which also has all my other academic peer review journal articles in it. So people who want to like follow up on that, but I do summarize it in On the Historicity of Jesus as well. Fantastic, fantastic. I guess I got to ask, I know studying ancient history, it's kind of a weird question to ask, but is there any new insights of what's been going on in the past? Uh, like, what do you mean? Well, recently, any new discoveries that we should be aware of? Any new you mean really? Relating to Jesus or sure. relating to Christianity? Oh, oh sure. Uh, n not really. Um, so <laughs> I wrote a blog recently about uh, mummy gospels. Uh, there's there's a lot of bogus fake news coming out. Uh, it, it's all the rage now to write fake news about these amazing new discoveries that, that are bogus that didn't actually happen. Uh, so you got to be on the watch out for that. Uh, the closest thing we have that could be something, and it still hasn't resolved into anything yet, um, was uh, there was a claim made by a Christian apologist that uh, the so you know the um, I don't know you know about the Hobby Lobby family the Green family oh, yes. uh, in in the United States um, not only do they try to uh, interfere with women's birth control that work for them uh, and use religious justifications for it but they also uh, have created the Museum of the Bible in D.C. which is going to open soon uh, where they're going to put uh, on display basically all this black market shit they've bought. Uh, they, they've bought tons and tons of looted, basically loot, stuff that was probably almost certainly stolen, uh, uh, dug up by looters, uh, not actually, not legitimate archaeological finds. So, and in fact, they've actually, they're, they're being uh, uh, investigated by the federal government for uh, antiquities fraud, for engaging in uh, buying of uh, unprovenanced artifacts and supporting the looting industry and so on. And so they were like million dollars too. Yeah, it couldn't happen to a nicer family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's got a lot of money, so I'm sure he'll get off. But um, the uh, but anyway, that's going on. But the thing is, is one of the things that's among. So he's got this huge private collection, and a lot of that stuff has never been seen by any scholars. It's never been seen by archaeologists because it wasn't dug up properly. It was not dug up by official uh, archaeology, and it's not been seen by any other uh, scholar or expert who would publish on the, the artifacts. So there, there's a lot of these manuscripts and things that he has. 
um, that haven't been looked at yet. He's just been holding them in his private collection, and now they're going to now they're getting attention. He's going to put them in the museum, so now he's hiring scholars, legitimate scholars, to look at the evidence and publish on it. Now, nothing has been published yet, uh, but I know for a fact that there are legitimate papyrologists looking at some of this stuff, and so there there will be some real things coming out about some of this stuff. But it's problematic because it's not provenanced, so we can't really date it. Um, so it's going to have a lot of problems like that. And so there's a lot of disputes over how early some of the manuscripts are. Uh, so there was one claim that there was a first century manuscript of Mark, which, by which they mean just a few sentences or a few words on a scrap of paper, or papyrus literally, uh, that supposedly represent the Gospel of John, and it supposedly dates to the first century AD. Now, the more scrutiny that claim got, the, the more it dissolves. So it doesn't look like that's actually the case. But we won't know until whatever manuscript this is that they're talking about gets looked at by an actual professional and gets published under actual peer review in an actual academic journal. Uh, and that's happening. There's people looking at it, so it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. So there might be some revelations that come out. I, I doubt they're going to be very surprising. I think the manuscript is probably going to turn out to be a late 2nd century manuscript of Mark, which would be, you know... Uh, useful because we don't have a lot of early manuscripts of Mark, but it's only a few words, so it's not even a whole manuscript. It's just a piece of one tiny scrap of a piece of one page. Um, so it's going to be of limited utility. There aren't going to be any great revelations resulting from any of this. I'm quite certain. Um, what what I want to see is is I, I don't think there's going to be any new revelations in the history of Christianity. I think all that's to be found has been found. Um, highly unlikely that anything new will be found. It's not impossible, but highly unlikely in any way. What I want to see is a thing that, that's getting neglected is that there is a whole library buried under the ash at Herculaneum, Italy. An actual library with the book still there, sitting there under like 50 feet of ash. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, and they were excavating it in the late 19th century, and they were trying to uh, reconstruct the books by their charcoal, because they're, they're charred in place as a roll. They'd break them up into pieces and use like like traditional puzzle, like put them together like a puzzle and try and recreate the text. And they realize that this is too expensive and not very reliable. So after doing a few texts like this, they just filled in the hole, buried it, reburied the library, and have never gone back because Italy has never been in an economic situation capable of doing it. So it's just been sitting there untapped. Uh, and yet now we have the technology where we can take these charred rolls and we can put them uh, in a particle accelerator. And th this happened with a manuscript of Archimedes recently. Put it in a particle accelerator, like they did for Archimedes. They put it in the particle accelerator at Stanford University and used the cloud chamber computer to actually reconstruct the location of all the iron atoms in the artifact and were able to use that to reconstruct the text. So a computer could basically just see the text and reconstruct it. And you never have to unroll the scroll. You don't have to damage it. You don't have to destroy it. The computer can just do it uh, you know, with the simulation of what's in there. So we have the technology. Uh, it's just really expensive. So there's a whole library sitting there. It was buried in 79 AD. So um, it would contain texts available before that date. Probably won't have anything directly relevant to Christianity, but it could have things like... Um, we have Ovid's Fasti, who is this is a Ovid is a poet in the early first century who wrote uh, basically a poem about all the festivals, the religious festivals and holidays of ancient Rome. We're missing half of it, uh, half, and the, we're missing the half that has the Romulus festival, which resembles the Gospel of Mark the most uh, in interesting ways, as we know from other his, historians of the period who write about it. Um, 
in tantalizing ways. But it would be really interesting to see uh, a complete description of what was called the Romulus Passion Play. There was there was basically a Passion Play every year done on the death and resurrection of Romulus. Um, we would love to see that, and there's a very very high chance uh, that there would be a complete collection of Ovid's Fasti, because it was a very standard piece of literature. It's a Roman library. It was a Latin text. So it's a good chance it's there. Um, I'd say maybe like 60% chance at least that it's there. So there could be things like that that we find. Um, and other things like Varro wrote an encyclopedia of ancient religion that could be extremely useful for context. That could also be there. Uh, so it would be really helpful to go in there and get that stuff and, and recover it. But it's sitting there. as a whole library just waiting. That's absolutely fascinating. I, that sounds like a good GoFundMe. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Richard, i got to ask one last question. Well, I've got two questions left, really. Um, of course, you're, you're, you're a great historian and you're a mythicist, which kind of puts you in, on, the, on the edge. Uh, mainstream scholars, are they starting to come around to the idea that Jesus might be, uh, might be uh, not historically uh, what we thought he was? Well, it's too early to say. Um, right now, there are seven, at least seven, fully qualified uh, PhDs in a relevant field. Some of them professors, some of them retired professors in the field, uh, who have ad- who have come out publicly as saying that they're agnostic about the historicity of Jesus now. Uh, and I give the list on my website. Uh, it's on my uh, Bart Ehrman recap article. I have a whole section where I talk about. Uh, which scholars have actually come out as admitting this now. And I know there are more scholars who, who are also agnostic about historicity, but won't go public with it because they're afraid of backlash. They're afraid of being punished for, for daring to suggest that Jesus might not exist. So we're, we're up against a bit of politics and money uh, that, that's basically being used to sort of intimidate people into not going there, as it were. Uh, and also my book is the first peer-reviewed argument for this case that's been published basically ever. Um, so, uh, and that came out in 2014. And when uh, we had the, when Thomas Thompson in the 70s came out with his book arguing that Moses and the patriarchs were mythical, that they never existed historically, uh, there was huge backlash and resistance against that. Uh, they tried to destroy his career. Uh, no one would be caught dead, uh, you know, being friendly to his thesis and so on. But now it's the mainstream consensus outside of biblical fundamentalism. Uh, the, the mainstream consensus is that actually, yeah, Moses and the patriarchs are probably mythical. The stories aren't true. Uh, and, and they were sort of invented to sort of justify and codify Jewish thought at the time. Uh, and so that's kind of like the mainstream view now. And it took, I don't know, 20, 30 years from after the publication of, of his challenge to the consensus on this uh, for it to become the consensus. So if my book came out in 2014, really we got to look back in, you know, 2034, 2044 and see where we are uh, by then. Uh, hopefully it doesn't have to wait that long. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Carrier, for being with us today. So what's next for Richard Carrier? Where are you going? Where can people find you? Well, uh, this is great for a Canadian audience because I'm actually doing a massive Canadian tour uh, coming up wow. next month. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, what cities am I hitting? I'm going to appear uh, either doing a talk or doing a pub meet where you can just come over and hang out and have a drink and maybe buy some of my books. Um, I get them signed. If you already have books, bring them and I'll sign them. Uh, I'm going to be in Vancouver, Kelowna, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Regina, Winnipeg, Kenora, Thunder Bay, Salt St. Marie, wow. Toronto, and Waterloo. Wow. So I'm doing, 
doing all those cities all the way across Canada. Uh, eventually, maybe next year I'll do Eastern Canada. I'm still I still have to do Eastern Canada, but I'm going to get all the way as far as Toronto. Well, Toronto's uh, from pretty Van- Eastern Canada from Vancouver. Right well, after the tour, you're going to end up moving here. You realize that? <laughs> <laughs> Forget Columbus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Enjoy Columbus while you can. Keep yeah, your eye sure. on Kelowna. We've got some fires coming up, so make sure you're in you're in contact with your Kelowna. Uh, backers, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Well, be a month. That's still a month away. And for anyone who wants to, who's up there in Canada, near any of those cities, wants to see me, uh, just go to my website and look for my Canada tour, and all the details are there. Perfect. Right on. Richard, before I let you go, I gotta ask one favor. Can I get you to say, "Hi, I'm Richard Carrier, and I took a left at the Valley." Hi, I'm Richard Carrier, and I took a left at the Valley. And that was Richard Carrier. Woohoo! Richard Carrier. What a fantastic interview that was. It was. Yeah. He was, he was absolutely awesome. Yeah, and I, I've learned a lot. I mean, I always learn a lot. And, you know, I, I told him on the, uh, you know, on the interview, and whenever I speak to Richard Carrier, I get this urge of putting my nose to a history book or something like that because it's so fascinating the way he looks at it. Although I'm, I, don't, I don't think I'd be anywhere near a good researcher like he is. He seems to have the researching down to a fine science. And he's super organized. Have you ever noticed that? Yep. Yeah. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Well, thank you. Thank you, Scott, for uh, joining me for oh, the show. Thanks for, thanks for having me in again. Helping me uh, hold up the fort. You well, can somebody's got to do it. Exactly. Somebody's got to keep an eye on me. You can find us at liftatvalley.com. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, at LETV. You can send us an email at leftatvalley at outlook.com. If you uh, sign up for places like Block Talk Radio, they will actually send you an email whenever the show is about to air. And if you'd be so kind, give us a five-star review. It helps others find the show. That'd be great. Coming up, we got, we got a hell of a month coming up. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about, has feminism gone too far? We have a guest that says yes. That'll be interesting and controversial. In August, we have uh, Randy Tyson's wife, Rhonda, and she was a nurse in Ghana, and she's an atheist nurse in Ghana. She's going to talk about her experience. We're also going to be talking to Marissa about uh, being a transgender woman. Karen Garst, the author, is coming uh, on the 19th. We all have, also have a Ro- Veronica Drantz is going to be talking about... Remember that uh, little, little thing we talked about, the baby that was not assigned a sex at right, birth? Right, We're going to be talking about the biology of that. And some interesting shows. Oh, These that's are some interesting, really interesting, interesting uh, topics. In September, we'll have our old friend Del Rey come back and talk awesome. to us about recovering from religion. And we'll also have a show about the whole Bernie Sanders thing down in the States. Oh. We have a guy doing a, 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 a documentary. He's going to come and interview us on our podcast. That should be interesting. Wicked. See what Canadians thought the whole Bernie Sanders saga in the States. On the 23rd, our good old friend, Arn Raw, returns. <laughs> that should be nothing but interesting. And, of course, we also have the legendary Jerry Coyne. Talk about evolution. We've got a packed couple of months here coming up. So You've been working hard. I've been working hard on getting these people. Jeez, no people understand that. Not easy. I have to pay all these people to come to our show. <laughs> Ouch. Good thing, good thing it's cheap Canadian whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you guys. Thank you, Scott. <sighs> Enjoy the summer, and we'll see you guys next week. Next week. Same Until time. then. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated.
me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful, but I swear to God, pun intended, I find it disgraceful. The thousands of children are raped by priests, and since they're holy men of God, they get away scot-free. And the Pope does his very best to keep it on the hush, don't wanna affect business, he loves money too much. We know that they love the kids, but how the fuck can we protect them while they planning to molest them? We teaching them to respect them. The system is broke down, working backwards in the only action of tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them. The parties of God's hands are bloodstained, millions of murders by believers, and they're all in God's name. And let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful, but I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful. That many atheists are told to be quiet, you're not alone, speak your mind, time to let it be known. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist, 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 I'm an atheist.